0: No, you tell it. No, you.
1: I'm not telling it.
0: You should totally tell it. (laughs) Well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, you tell it is a series that switches up the storytelling, so each performer writes a true life tale, and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Today's two on Tuesday stories are from our Uproar show. Minna Proctor is an editor, essayist, and teaches in the creative writing program at Fairleigh Dickinson University, where she is the editor of the Literary Review. Here, Minna contemplates the stories we tell about ourselves and to ourselves. Noah Diamond reads, Folie deux.
1: The first time I went to see a therapist, I was 26 years old. I was in the middle of trying to write my MFA thesis and dreadfully blocked. No wonder. The stories I was writing were a combination of painful and painfully horrible. There was one about a Lower East Side troll that I had modeled entirely on Martin Miller's The Good Fairies of New York. There was a god-awful variation of Tennessee Williams' Desire and the Black Masseur, set in a prison in which I was trying to write my way into an emotionally justifiable murder by cannibalism with erotic overtones. (laughs) And the only one I remember distinctly, of ten similar stories was a bleak, barely fictionalized account of the time I ran away from home when I was 15 and ended up snorting heroin for a hazy week with a lunatic named Guy in a plasticine suburb on the French Riviera, while some international policing agency calmly reassured my mother, transfixed by fear and unspeakable rage, that I was likely just sightseeing in Paris. (laughs) My first choice thesis advisor was on sabbatical, and my second choice agreed to work with me only on the condition that I wasn't writing anything too southern gothic, adolescent, or fantastical. I assured him I wasn't. (laughs) And then went home and got writer's block. I decided that I had probably talked myself into a crisis and quite methodically went about trying to talk myself back out of it. I went to health services and asked them to refer me to a shrink who worked on a sliding scale. I requested someone who understood the writer's process. I wanted a woman who was older than me and smarter. Someone who talked. I loathed the idea of therapy as some entity in a frumpy jacket sitting blankly across from me, stirring rarely like an old turtle, and just enough to ask me how that made me feel. I preferred a European Jewish intellectual. I was, quite specifically, looking for a mother figure. They referred me to Dr. Sandra Wilk, who among other specialties treated Juilliard students suffering from stage fright. My mother had studied at Juilliard in the late 1950s. The bond was forged as if by destiny. A friend of mine once referred to the Upper West Side as the Boulevard of Dashed Hopes because of the high (laughs) concentration of mental health professionals who practiced there. Dr. Wilkes' office was out of a Viennese film set. It was a cavern of a room on the second floor of a teaching institute with a chandelier lobby and a marble stairway. Her office was painted a deep purplish red and lined with bookshelves. The titles alone could have constituted an associative therapy. What caught your attention, she would ask if I broke off in the middle of a sentence, obviously distracted by a book on the shelf. What's object relations, I would ask? What's a refrigerator mother? She was a diminutive person. Her sweet little face practically disappeared under a formidable copper-colored Jacqueline Suzanne Buffon, and glamorous pair of oversized sunglasses that she wore all the time, despite the fact that we met in the evening in her half-lit mahogany office. Every now and then she'd take off the glasses to rub her eyes or wipe away a stray tear, Revealing full eye makeup, opalescent gray eyeshadow, and thickly applied coal and mascara.
2: <laughs>
1: Maybe she didn't wear sunglasses all the time because what I remember so keenly are her pale eyes under all that decoration, intent on mine, utterly unwavering. On our first meeting, she asked me, as therapists do, to review my life story just so we'd have somewhere to start. I reminded her that I had come to her to get through my writer's block, and she should know from the start that I had already worked out my mother issues. My mother and I had basically spent my college years intently repairing our relationship from the emotional damage sustained during the 1980s. Dr. Wilk listened attentively and scribbled notes in pencil on a legal pad. It would be the only time I ever saw her take notes during a session. It was a familiar hackneyed narrative. One that I'd been through many times. A string of significant markers. A timeline of defining events. I was plowing along when something unexpected tripped me up. None of the usual drama. The divorce, the move from bucolic Texas, the running away from France, or my expulsion from the house the week of my 17th birthday. No, I got stuck talking about my high school graduation. I don't know why it even came up. It wasn't one of my regular getting to know you stories. It wasn't even a story. It was just the end of high school. The day I walked down a grassy aisle, barefoot, my red graduation robes knotted cleverly along the hem to form an asymmetrical bell shape, received an empty diploma case, for I still had credits to make up, tossed my hat and watched the crowds disperse. All of my very closest friends disappear into clusters of family, off to a fancy lunch at Legal Seafood or the Beekman Arms. I might have considered, as I stood in the parking lot watching everyone leave, that for all of our camaraderie and manipulated adolescent Sturm und Drang, even my friends who'd been grounded had their dressers searched for drugs, had routinely cut class with me, and who were also receiving empty diploma tubes, were nonetheless being gathered up by loved ones. I may well have been the only one whose family drama left me to stand by myself in a vacant auxiliary parking lot slash soccer field. I let them all go and then, alone, climbed into my pea-green 1972 Buick Skylark that gave you an electrical shock during rainstorms (laughs) and drove away, too. The story was, I found, as I recounted it, At once, the saddest story I'd ever told. It was the story most emblematic of my teenage years, yet another clamorous failure that had no audience. I broke down there in Dr. Wilkes' office, weeping, as if for the first time. She unwedged a box of tissues from a pile of strewn papers and file folders and pushed it across the desk toward me. She made notes on her legal pad and then gently told me that we could finish the rest of our narrative at our next meeting. Something we didn't do. My narrative was, by tacit accord, complete enough for therapy to commence. For the next five years, I saw Dr. Wilk continuously, and she would frequently refer to my graduation day. I'd be frustrated at myself or confused as to why this or that happened or why I responded to this or that in one way or another. And she would softly remind me that I was the little girl who no one came to see graduate from high school. We all have totemic stories. The way we choose them and then choose to tell them is ultimately more important than the actual events. Like historians, we all build significance into sequential events, whether they are random or clearly a formulation of cause and effect. Here is another totemic story from much, much later, sometime in early 2005. My mother and I are in the oncologist's office of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Brookline. I live in New York, so I can't come to every chemotherapy session, but I come up for these meetings with the doctor if I can. It's a way of offsetting my mother's inability to fully absorb and then accurately report the doctor's recommendations, as well as her own inability to tell the doctor everything that's been on her mind. Any other questions, offers the doctor, because we're talking about the treatments that we're running out of. I was wondering whether you could just give me a quick rundown of Mom's record, I ask unexpectedly. I've gotten a little confused about the whens and the whats of the surgeries, chemo, radiation, and so forth over the last decade. My tone is glib, sort of aggressively frank, but I am using the term decade artfully. The doctor has her game face on and my mother is flipping through an old Atlantic Monthly, trying to divest herself of as much responsibility as possible for the appointment. Both of us are psychotically tired from having spent the weekend in the emergency room. She has bleeding lesions all over her chest, which she won't let the oncologist look at because they disagree about the diagnosis. My mother insists that there are burns from something called radiation recall, The doctor thinks it's the breast cancer, metastasized to her skin. Whatever the diagnosis, my mother has to go to the burn unit twice a week to have the wounds treated and dressed. The doctor nods and spins around on her rolling stool to face the computer, which looks like it might have been purchased from Radio Shack the year the Go-Go's went platinum. (laughs) (laughs) After plugging in some codes and scrolling down some screens, the doctor turns to me and starts, well... If we don't count the early diagnosis of breast cancer in 1991 that your mother didn't want to treat, I blink, knowingly, as if to say, oh yes, that. I know all about that. The lymphoma diagnosis was in 1995, and we started the first chemotherapy in 1996. What I remember distinctly from that moment was realizing that my mother actually had had cancer of one form or another, because she battled three separate cancers for a decade. It was a preposterously long time to have cancer. The duration had become as furious, as ferocious as the disease. What I didn't realize until now, this moment, tracking my own timeline, was that the year I started therapy for writer's block was the year my mother started chemotherapy. In therapy or out of it, creating a narrative, is a process. The first stage is a highlight reel filled with stunning spoilers, one-liners, and clichés. I think, for example, of the way my mother described her grandfather who she barely knew. He was a philandering vegetarian pediatrician. (laughs) 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 Who cheated on my great-grandmother Frida with her best friend from the shtetl. And even though he left Frida, he followed her and their children to America, periodically dropping into my mother's life despite being under strict orders to stay away. A phone call when she was 16. A letter when I was born suggesting that she name me after the best friend from shtetl. <laughs> Somehow, this irresponsible jackal of a man ended up teaching pediatric medicine in Pittsburgh and was beloved by his students. One of those students somehow befriended my parents, and it was in the garden of that student's house in Pittsburgh that I took my first steps. Do I remember how green the day lily leaves were, the flagstones solid beneath my feet? After the highlight reel, you move into the chronology to establish context, which is something like being hit on the back of the head with a five-pound bag of Idaho potatoes. Chronology is dull, deadly dull, and infinite. The minutes of your life are so many, and how do you determine which minute is the minute that caused the minute that led to the incident of relevance? What's worse, the minutes of your life don't begin with your birth, but with your genesis, which extends back past your conception, past your parents, back even to the shtetl. And how many minutes ago was that? Like me, my mother didn't really do well or graduate high school either she didn't pass math, and she blew off the graduation ceremony. My mother didn't need her high school diploma because she'd already been accepted into two separate programs at Juilliard. She was going to get married to a handsome film editor who would take her to New York and who she would leave a year later for a handsome Norwegian composer, who was married anyway and only in New York on a travel grant. All of which I learned the long afternoon I had decided to interview her Thinking a chapter about her would be a nice compliment to the book I was writing about my father, having definitively abandoned fiction ten years earlier, the moment I delivered my horrendous thesis. (laughs) We sat down with a tape recorder and I asked her about her spirituality and what she remembered about her mother's life story, and she told me about love and about regret and regret and regret. It was her personal history more candid and comprehensive than any she'd ever told before. It was, after all, for the record. I never listened to the tape. I wrote my chapter without it and plowed forward another year, writing and researching, interviewing, synthesizing, and writing, until I had finished a first full draft of my book. Her chapter, Truancy, was the third. It started with a description of my mother that likened her to the sweeping arches of a Romanesque church, the pale stones lit to a golden hue by the afternoon sun streaming in through a rosette window set high in the wall. She was aesthetic to a fault, and I was tyrannically pragmatic. She'd arrange plants in pots that didn't quite fit, so they would teeter, but they looked lovely. She would balance unusual plates and odd bits of glass on the mantelpiece, The whole house shook and clattered treacherously when you walked through a room. Her solution was that everyone should walk more carefully. Mine was to put the dishes in the cabinet and eat off them. We locked horns when I turned thirteen, the way mothers and daughters do. She was stunned. She was wounded. Her own mother had died when she was only thirteen, and teenagers, she thought, grieve. They longed to have their mothers beside them again. She was only half wrong. Rebellion against my mother was horrific. It was like punching a cat. We just retreated from each other, in shock, absent, truant. The chapter about her ended with my high school graduation. I put that first momentous draft into a massive black binder with colored tab dividers marking each section. It was Christmas when I finished. I was alone in our decrepit old house in Tuscany, Where my fiancé and I had gone to write our books, he was back in the States seeing family, and she was coming to visit. It was a rare pilgrimage for her, as the house was barely winterized, and she usually spent the summer there. But I turned on all of the space heaters, piled blankets on her bed, and laid in a store of propane tanks so that we'd have warm water. The very first night she was there, we decided to make giant stuffed artichokes, filled with chopped garlic and chopped parsley, Chopped pancetta and chopped artichoke hearts Just the way she used to have them When she lived in Italy as a young woman I was so anxious about the book The first draft of the first book I'd ever written That I handed it to her the moment she arrived You read, I said, I'll chop (laughs) She sat on the couch to read While I worked mutely at the counter My back to her In that small, dim, chilly kitchen She was so tiny and the binder was so big I could hear the paper rustling violently every time she turned a page. Stuffed artichokes are an extremely labor-intensive meal. I must have been working away at them for over half an hour when I realized with a start that it was deafeningly silent in the room. I hunched my shoulders as if expecting a blow from behind because I knew somehow that she'd gotten to chapter three. I turned slowly to face her a long chef's knife still in my hand. (laughs) She was sitting, her face turned down toward the binder, which she held closed in her lap. I didn't breathe because that would have broken the silence. She did. Mina, she said, I was there. I went to your graduation, but I hid so you wouldn't see me because I thought you didn't want me there. I didn't want you to get mad. About a month before my mother died, she called me over to her side and said, if they call, I don't want to talk to them. (laughs) I pressed her. Who, them, why? Her hearing had gotten very poor. She felt that her brain had shrunk too far away from her eardrum and that all the people sounded like distant, raspy ghosts. She worried that her life force might get sucked into the receiver and fill the chasm between the people who called and her ear. I realized then that my mother had already left me. We'd already had our last conversation. She had slipped away and we were holding vigil over her body, just trying to keep fear at bay. Grief begins long before our loved ones die, the hospice nurse told me. For some, she said, death can even be the end of grief. Fifteen years earlier, I had been with my mother at the appointment in which her doctor told her that they'd found precancerous cells in her breast, which I subsequently learned she elected not to treat. The fear started then. When did my grieving start? The disconnect between dread and certainty, the sense that I wasn't living entirely in my body, that there wasn't any part of this domineering cycle that could be controlled, and that my mother's life force would soon be violently sucked away. And that's when things would start to get really bad.
0: Noah Diamond spent years researching and adapting I'll Say She Is, the Lost Marx Brothers musical. And we can't wait to see him play Groucho Marx in the show's first revival at the Connolly Theater, playing through July 2nd. Here, Noah shares a story about an earlier, equally impressive theatrical undertaking with his partner in life and art, Amanda Sisk. Switching it up, Minna Proctor reads, Gabriel Santorum meets the NYPD.
2: Readers of a certain age may recall that long ago, there was a man called George W. Bush. Standing approximately 3 foot 4 in his stocking feet, or 5 foot 11 in costume, Mr. Bush inadvertently became president of the United States in 2001, which we all know was the beginning of everything being terrible. The Bush years were a perpetual state of emergency. Like many of our friends, Sisk and I became intensely political, blogging furiously and marching in protest rallies in New York and Washington, where we carried signs that said things like, nobody has ever won a war, and Rumsfeld, now there's a guy with shit for brains. But no matter how many of these rallies we attended, the war continued, as did the presidency, a word I would have put in quotation marks in 2003. So we decided, for the sake of our country, to take action. We would fight for truth and justice through the most powerful force on earth. Musical comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we didn't really have any illusions that producing theater in downtown Manhattan was going to end a war or swing an election, but we did think we could inspire our audience to become better informed and more engaged. We saw ourselves as participants in a golden age of political satire. But also as the descendants of earlier, more idealistic artist activists. I am taking pains here to point out how high minded we were about these musicals. I am taking out an insurance policy on the story I am about to tell. <coughs> the third show in the series was called Moral Value Meal. It took place in the present time, which was the spring of 2006, a particularly deranged moment in the awful saga. With the midterms approaching, Republicans were rallying around W's Culture of Life banner, which included the most severe erosion of abortion rights since Roe v. Wade couched in a lot of beautiful Christian language about how we must protect traditional values, or else gay feminists will kill your children. (laughs) (laughs) Moral Value Meal opened on a gay wedding, which is raided by armed agents of the Department of Homeland Security. There was a magical fairy with tiara and wand who explained the theory of intelligent design and the presentation of an abstinence-only program called Save It For Later.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Terry Schiavo was represented as a single human leg attached to a machine. There was a sketch satirizing conscience clauses, which allowed pharmacists to refuse to fill prescriptions for birth control due to religious objections but there was one scene in Moral Value Meal that everyone connected with the show still talks about and that everyone who saw it remembers. It was a comedy sketch that remained with us in a vivid way long after the show closed. The title of this sketch was Santorum. Mm. (laughs) It's tempting to insert some biographical information here about former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum, but this is really truly a case where you should just Google it. (laughs) Uh By 2006 he was making headlines with one outrageous statement after another, many to the effect that there was no crucial difference between a fertilized egg cell and, say, an accountant from Pittsburgh. (laughs) A widely referenced 2005 Washington Post article had revealed that Santorum displayed in his Senate office a photograph of a stillborn fetus, sadly issued by Mrs. Santorum during its second trimester. The Santorums named it Gabriel and actually brought it home to meet the other children. Mm. In the mind of Amanda Sisk, this was a comedy sketch waiting to happen. She wrote and directed a highly provocative scene in which a young political operative arrives in Santorum's office for a job interview. He's aghast to be confronted with a gory, decomposing fetus floating in liquid in a large canning jar, which Santorum cheerfully introduces as his son. Santorum rhapsodizes about the joys of parenthood, then announces that his assistant has also brought her children to the office today, and in comes the assistant with more jars containing more (laughs) fetuses. The job applicant squirms in horror while Santorum and his assistant merrily chatter on, interacting with these jars as though they are children. The assistant hands one of the jars to the job applicant, applicant, who starts retching and gagging. Santorum runs over and takes the jar away, good-naturedly saying, oh, he doesn't have kids. He doesn't know how to hold them. (laughs) The
1: scene
2: culminates in a civics lesson in which Santorum uses three fetus jars to illustrate a point about the three branches of government. His rhetoric involves much rolling and shaking of the jars and when the lights fade, he is holding one of them above his head and shouting This is your president! (laughs) (laughs) I played Santorum. It's difficult to describe the sound the audience made during this sketch. (laughs) Continuously, from the moment I took the first jar out of the desk drawer, it wasn't just laughter. It was a meteorological event. (laughs) A tidal wave crashing through the theater, screaming, groaning, gasping, cursing, punctuated by rises and falls and scattered applause. Up on stage, we valiantly marched through the scene with straight faces, bellowing the dialogue over this dissonant roar that continued long after the blackout. It was wonderful. The Santorum sketch was hardly the first time we stepped over the line of good taste, but I have never heard an audience reaction like that anywhere, and certainly not so sustained. Perhaps our audience was actually responding to the ideology of Rick Santorum, which was in much worse taste than our sketch. Perhaps we had given them a potent metaphor for the misogyny, homophobia, and religious extremism which were ravaging our democracy. Or maybe it was the fetuses in jars. (laughs) (laughs) In order for the scene to be effective, of course, the props had to be convincing. Ah, the sweet spring of '06, when we were a young couple sharing a studio apartment in Hell's Kitchen, I'd be sitting at home making fetus dolls out of cotton, pantyhose, <laughs> and paint while Amanda went shopping for canning jars. The man at the store asked her what she was canning, and she said something like, Nothing. Why do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> the, bo- the Bush years were a time of great paranoia. We had invited both Bush and Cheney to our previous show. Actually, we had offered Bush one free ticket and Cheney one ticket for half price. And thereafter, felt that there were strange clicks on the telephone and an unusual number of helicopters overhead on days when we had rehearsals. It was clear that the White House would stop at nothing to destroy our theater company. The fetus jars looked great, which is to say, horrible. Horrible. The gruesomely painted dolls contained weights so that they would float with the proper gravity. We added chunky applesauce to the water so it looked as if the dolls were suspended in decaying, organic matter. Meticulous artists that we are, we experimented with different weights, different amounts of
1: applesauce.
2: (laughs) We engineered these creations with the kind of determined vision that once moved Amanda cyst to exclaim, suck it, George Lucas. (laughs) Usually, when a show closed, it's various props and costumes wound up in our apartment. And so, after Moral Value Meal ended its run, the decor of our small chaotic home now included two large canning jars containing what looked very much like fetuses. There was a third jar, which was taken off our hands by our friend and co-producer, Corey Musa, who displayed it in his otherwise austere and uncluttered home. (laughs) Later that year, after some unpleasant tangles with the building's management company, Sisk and I decided to move. We made sure that most of our things were already on the truck by the early afternoon on moving day, so that when the landlord came by to inspect the apartment, it would just be the two of us, our cat, a few stray boxes and suitcases, and the two
0: jars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Watching the landlord Miss his henchmen repeatedly glance at these things in puzzled horror was as good a show as anything we ever did on stage. But let's face it, we couldn't move with them. The jars were heavy, and they were disgusting. (laughs) This was a temporary move to an even smaller space, and there was just no way to justify dragging these things along. We opened the jars, drained the water, flushed the rotten applesauce, wrapped the dolls in newspaper, and threw them away, washed the jars, and left them in the recycling bin. Not long after that, Corey moved to Los Angeles. On his last night in New York, Sisk and I were at his place saying goodbye. Everything in his apartment was packed, except we couldn't help noticing for the third and last remaining fetus in a jar. Corey apologetically told us that it would not be making the journey west with him, despite my confidence that with the right agent, it could do very well in Hollywood. (laughs) It was nice of Cory to save it for us, but our situation hadn't changed. We just didn't have room in our lives for a fake fetus in a jar. Nor did we have, on this particular evening, any enthusiasm whatsoever for opening the jar and dealing with its putrid contents. When it was time to call it a night, Corey walked us downstairs. At the bottom of the stairs was the vestibule and the front door, which had a large rectangular window. The three of us stood there in the vestibule on Corey's last night in New York and watched the following scene through the window as though it were a movie on a screen. The scene is 14th Street, between 7th and 8th. There are clusters of garbage cans in front of each building. Sitting on the sidewalk right in front of the closest cluster of garbage cans is the jar. Cory has simply placed it there, like a lawn ornament. (laughs) From stage right, a cop enters, alert, on his beat, as though he's just wandered over from the Max Senate lot. He sees the jar and does a startled take. He bends down to look at it more closely. He shines his flashlight at it. He pokes it to see its contents move. He stands up again and looks around in every direction and then cautiously picks up the jar. The cop and Gabriel Santorum exit together, stage left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It.
1: Visit us on the web at knowyoutelleth.com.